Good morning, everyone. Uh, what a good turnout for second service. First service was thin. I think it might be because there's something taking place right after this, right? Maybe something. Um, who's excited? Amen. Oh, man. Not only that, check it out. This week, Friday, I, but right before I walked out of the door to, to walk into my office down here, I got news on the news that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Amen. Wow. Um, that is uh, definitely a huge step in the direction of, of ending uh, what is, I think, can only be described as genocide in this country. Obviously, it doesn't end it all together yet, but it's definitely a huge step, and we should celebrate. But let me also remind us all that celebration doesn't always mean gloating. Um, and I, I, I know I've seen things on both sides, and, and um, the reality is it's not a victory over people. It's a, it's, it's a victory towards justice. And so uh, we are called to love people, even those who disagree with us. And so imagine all those people that, are, that talk about, I, I, I saw some things that I won't repeat on Facebook and other social media this week. Imagine confronting that with just pure love and graciousness. Uh, we, may we may or may not convince them to value all human life as we do. But if we value them as much as we value the unborn, I think it'll make a statement. What do you think? Amen. All right. That's all I have to say on that. I just wanted to, be a wanted to remind us all of that. Um, I know most of you could probably say it better than I could. So anyhow, let us uh, turn to Luke chapter 6. Boy, I had such a great time. Luke chapter 6 will be starting 20. I had a great time at Hume Lake, but I just, this is where I belong. I love this. I love being with all of you. And, uh, you know, but uh, I'm so grateful we had. And, and everybody enjoy uh, having Monty Sharp fill in a couple of weeks ago. Remember Monty? I, I love him. He was my boss when I was on staff with Student Venture decades ago. Um, he called me a knucklehead. I saw the service. He called me. I said I was a knucklehead back then. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny that. Um, but, uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, Justin Alfred last week. What a blessing to have him. And he's just been one of my uh, close, uh, dear brothers for a long time. So I'm blessed to be back, though. Luke chapter 6. Oh, let me say one other thing. That picture you saw of the boys' bunkhouse there at Hume, right? You saw that? I'm just going to say that's Lance's idea. Um, what happened was is that there was a theme for cleanup um, and uh, each day. And so the, the, the camp staff would go and they would, they would give you points based on how uh, clean your cabin was plus how much it fit the theme. And that particular th day, the theme had to do with tourists. And Lance said, well, we live in Idle Wild. We know exactly what tourists do. And so the kids trashed the room. <laughs> so um, I don't know how many points we got for that. But it was fun. Anyway, all right, Luke chapter 6, verse 20. This is... Uh, Speaking of Jesus, it says, He lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. 
Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Our merciful God, we thank you for this, this beautiful morning that you've given us to gather as your church. Lord, we pray for this uh, special meeting after the service, Lord. Um, we, we know our desires, but we pray that your will be done. And Father, we just trust you with that, and we pray for the Clark family. Father, we uh, surrender our hearts and our minds to you now as we open your word. Cause us to embrace and embody the spirit of humility and poverty that we may be truly blessed. And Lord, fill us with wisdom. Teach us to pursue righteousness and, to, and, and give us, Lord, appetites for that which is holy. Cause us, Lord, to receive your scriptures with holy, deep submission and absolute reference this morning. God, we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would join us as we receive your word. We give this time over to you to open our hearts to hearing your voice. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. How do we know if we are doing God's will? There's a popular tradition in the Christian church today that would propose that you would look at if and how God is blessing you. Has God provided your needs and given you happiness in what you're doing? Well, then God must be blessing your faithfulness. But if you find yourself struggling to have your needs met and finding joy in where you are, maybe you need to find out why God is withholding blessing. It sounds logical, doesn't it? The problem is that it's not biblical. Many years ago, I saw a prosperity gospel preacher on TV who had uh, begun to give an illustration about flying coach. You ever flown coach? on an airplane. Oh, it's a wonderful experience, isn't it? It's like, oh, I got three peanuts in this bag. I was like, I can almost fit my legs in here. <laughs> Who's eating curry? Like, right? I literally had a guy open like the worst smelling food ever one time sitting next to him on an airplane. And he sat there for, and I'm just like, so he's giving this illustration, and he adds this parenthetical statement. And thank God I don't do that anymore. I have my own jets. Huh? <laughs> right? and, and then he started like he was going to continue. He stops again. And if you're not rich, it's because you don't believe that part of the Bible. My response was to yell at the TV, right? Like, what part of the Bible? Tell me that part of the Bible. I want airplanes. I don't need it. Just one. I don't even need a jet. I'm fine, just an airplane. 
the reality is, I still don't know what part of the Bible that dude was referring to. And the reason that I don't know that is because it's not there. While your popular prosperity gospel preachers are out there telling you to go live your, le- your best life now, Jesus said you are blessed when you are poor, hungry, and sad, and that you're in danger when you are rich, full, and happy. It seems odd, so we're going to learn what all that means. It's a little different than we might think. We're dealing with more the attitude and direction of our hearts. So let's keep our fingers there in Luke 6. We'll start with verse 20. It says that Jesus lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now remember that Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. It's a message to followers of Jesus. So he's not here promising the unbelievers who suffer are going to find any relief, but those who belong to him have eternal promises that particularly apply to believers who suffer for him. Jesus is in part speaking at odds with conventional wisdom. We might ask, if God's calling you, why isn't he blessing you? I was asked that when I was a starving youth pastor. Don't you think God would provide food if he wanted you to do this? But, but see, that's not the litmus test. Jesus here is confronting the idea that our achievement, or lack thereof, is somehow attached to our righteousness and faithfulness. And sure, there can be a connection. For example, if you're lazy and foolish, you're probably not going to achieve as much as if you are wise, hardworking, and good with people. Um, Proverbs 13.4 says this, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 24 says, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. And Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever whatsoever man sows, that he will also reap. See, that's general wisdom, though. We don't need biblical teaching. No, that's just obvious, right? You get what you pay for. You reap what you sow. It's not, you know, uh, anything that we're not familiar with. All of that is proverbial wisdom, right? You've heard this one, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, right? Um, Like when your dad picks you up from under your tricycle and asks what happened. And then you say through blood and tears, I rode my tricycle down the stairs. And then when dad asks why, you respond, because I wanted to see if I could. I'm not saying that this has ever happened in our home. I'm also not saying it hasn't happened in our home. (laughs) But all of that said, the the pleasantness and successes in our life are not necessarily intrinsically married to our morality. Jesus is more or less here in this passage addressing the pursuits of our hearts. He's not opposing conventional wisdom, but he's saying that conventional wisdom can be misleading. He's also expressing divine compassion to those who are oppressed and suffering. Any of you who have ever been really poor know how humiliating that is, especially when you have to ask for help. What's happening here, at least in part, is that Jesus is correcting a heresy. 
This is the idea that God demonstrates his blessing or approval through wealth and prosperity. Philip Ryken said, There are always some people who think that the best way to measure God's blessing is by looking at their bank account. Now, that doesn't mean that rich people are not blessed, but throughout history, it's been assumed that poverty is a curse. Well, God must not be blessing them because they must not be as faithful with their gifts as I am. It also doesn't mean that poverty in and of itself is a blessing. David Garland said poverty is not blessed in itself, but the poor's extreme vulnerability make them more likely than the rich to place their lives in the hands of God and respond to Jesus' preaching and healing. Why are you blessed? Because you can trust God to sustain you. It's easier for a person in need to accept oftentimes than for someone who is self-sufficient. But when we're pursuing wealth, we're in danger of two things, you know. Trusting money instead of God. How many of us have been there, right? The other one is compromise. We can be more prone to take advantage of others and trade our integrity for profit. In addition to all of that, there's a spiritual truth to be had. Uh, apart from God's grace, we are, each one of us, spiritually bankrupt in our sins. Ultimately, when we recognize our spiritual poverty, and we can surrender our utter sinfulness to God, he, He'll address that. And if we don't understand the weight of sin in our lives... It's impossible to have the humility to understand the weight of eternal glory that he exchanges with us apart from any merit whatsoever on our part. When we see our poverty, we appreciate the riches that he gives us. Verse 21. We're going to stay in Luke again. We'll jump around some, but keep your finger in Luke. Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, hunger is related to poverty, of course. Often it's the result of poverty. In the U.S., nobody really faces the kind of hunger and malnourishment that we see in many war-torn third world countries. But really, it has more to do with appetite. John 4, verse 34, this is Jesus. He says this, John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. What are we hungry for? What, what is our appetite for? What do we crave? Who said bacon? <laughs> Just kidding. In Matthew, Jesus says this, Matthew 6, 5, or 5, 6 rather. Matthew 5, 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, last week we shared a Father's Day video that was kind of nice. It was a father's prayer. And one of the lines was this. Cause him to quickly lose his appetite for the things of this world. That's a father praying for his son. Wow. And see, that's because our natural appetites are not of God, but to satisfy our desires. In contrast, Psalm 63.1 says this. The psalmist cries out, Psalm 63, 1, Oh God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, hunger deals with appetite. What do we hunger for? Is it food? Is it sex? Is it money? Is it thrills? What appetite do we have that we are driven to satisfy? Jesus says, blessed are you if that appetite is for righteousness. Our appetites reveal our hearts. You see, we know this. We know that Jesus is enough. We know that Jesus satisfied. We, we know that there were 5,000 hungry. There are actually probably close to 15,000 hungry people, if you count the women and children. Jesus satisfied their hunger uh, with a sack lunch from one boy. That's a lot of people to feed with a single sack lunch. It's because Jesus supplies the need. Jesus satisfies. We know this, but sometimes we just don't trust it. Resisting poverty and hunger can lead to compromises in our morals and ethics. How many of us have looked at our situation at one point in our lives and then kind of fudged our time card just a little bit? Or cheated just a little on our taxes. Oh, I don't need to claim that. You ever overcharged a customer because things were a little tight? You ever lied or failed to tell about a problem with a car that you were selling because you needed to sell it for more than it was probably worth? You ever lied to get a job or to avoid, avoid being fired or to get a promotion? See, all of those things are rooted in a lack of faith. They're rooted in not trusting God, but in trusting money instead. But the God who provides for the poor also feeds the hungry. Continuing in verse 21, it says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, laughter is important. It's actually super important. I can, I can hold your attention for like maybe, maybe 45 minutes at best on a good day. A good comedian can go for an hour and a half and leave you begging for more. True. Why? Because laughter is incredibly important to our mental health. Our, our, our minds desire that. The Mayo Clinic actually said that there's, there are strong, short, and long-term benefits to laughter. Some of the short-term benefits include uh, the stimulation of many organs. So it enhances the intake of uh, oxygen-rich air. It stimulates your heart's lungs, heart, lungs muscles. Uh, it increases the endorphins that are released by the brain. Uh, laughter activates and relieves your stress response. Uh, this, is, this is from the Mayo Clinic. It says a rollicking f uh, laugh fires up and then cools down your stress response and it can increase and then decrease your heart rate and blood pressure. The result, a good relaxed feeling. Laughter also soothes tension, can stimulate circulation and aid muscle relaxation, both of which will help to reduce some of the physical symptoms of stress. So if you're stressed, if you have anxiety, laugh. The long-term benefits, the Mayo Clinic says, of laughter are that it improves your immune system. 
the, it says that uh, there are chemical reactions that can affect the body by bringing more stress into your system and decreasing your immunity. And then by contrast, positive thoughts can actually release neuropeptides that help fight stress and potentially more serious illnesses. Uh, laughter relieves pain. Laughter, it can ease pain, uh, the Mayo Clinic says, by causing the body to produce its own natural painkillers. Laughter increases personal satisfaction, uh, makes it easier to cope with difficult situations. It also helps you to connect with other people. And it improves your mood. So uh, Mayo Clinic says that many people experience depression, sometimes due to chronic illnesses. Laughter can help lessen your stress, depression, and anxiety, and may make you feel happier. It can also improve your self-esteem. So you see, when I tell jokes, it's not just to be funny. I'm looking out for your health and your well-being. It's an act of love when I tell you jokes, especially like when I make jokes about bacon. No, actually... Just kidding. Bacon's no joke. Um, that joke's courtesy of the lovely Denise Giampa. Um, Abraham Lincoln said, if I did not laugh, I would die. Laughter is so important. It's actually, it actually becomes a coping mechanism. So if you've actually heard jokes that take place between emergency room doctors and some firefighters, you would be mortified. Right? Like, I worked for nearly seven years as a police chaplain, and having grown up in a, in a, in a law enforcement family, I, had, I was prepared. I knew, I knew some of the jokes were coming. And, and then I remember a while back there was some criticism coming down the pike uh, about some emails that some officers had exchanged from a particular police department. And, and the jokes were just highly inappropriate. Um, but... There's also a need for the kind of coping that comes with those kinds of jokes. Not that the jokes are okay, but they, they, it provides a coping mechanism. And again, I'm not excusing the jokes, but there's no substitute for laughter. And I have to say, it's pretty stupid to leave a record by doing it over email. Like, I, that was, you know. But, I, but listen, I heard all kinds of inappropriate, dark jokes. Um, and, and it really... It didn't bother me be, unless, of course, I could see that there was like some real malice or something involved. But, but that's how people often cope. If you're in a, a first responder, if you're in an industry where you see things that you shouldn't have to see, you might find yourself gravitating towards that. But here's the thing. More so, weeping. Weeping is appropriate. Often people make jokes about everything because they can't face real life. And more importantly, if we're not weeping over lost souls, we don't have the heart of Jesus. Look what happens when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. Remember, he's coming in. He's on a donkey. They're throwing branches down. They're throwing their cloaks down. They're saying, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to him who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? This is what Jesus, this is, this is what happens when Jesus comes towards Jerusalem. It says in uh, Luke 19, starting in verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day 
the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You know the short, anybody know the shortest verse in our English New Testament? Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. Junior Hire's favorite verse. This, this is taking place outside the womb of his friend Lazarus who had died. Now, I, I have to say I don't buy the idea that Jesus wept over the lack of faith of his disciples. I know that it's been said many times. But they had no indication of what he was going to do. And I really believe that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. So I, I think he wept because his friend died. Like, death is not good. I, I've lost a lot of people that I was very close to in the last several years. And for the most part, I'm confident that I'll see them again. But it still hurts so deeply when somebody that you love dies. Death is supposed to grieve us. That's the point. It's a reminder of our sinful human condition and our desperate need for Jesus. In fact, the, the way... It, the, that whole thing, that's, that's a reason that I've actually come to believe that when we can have an open casket funeral, we should. I know that sounds a little wrong, but, but no, think about it. We, we've sanitized death in our culture, and we're not honest about it with our kids. Oh, Fluffy's eating the tastiest milk bone of her life, and her teeth aren't falling out of her head anymore, and she's watching over you. Right? Like, no, listen, death is supposed to be disturbing. And when we shield people, even our children, from it, we are robbing them of seeing their desperate need for redemption in the practical way that God has given us ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Death is a horrible thing. And that's why Jesus wept. Ultimately, in this case, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, providing the, proving rather that he has power over that which grieves us, and he loves us, and that's true comfort. We should grieve. Our greatest mourning should be over our own sinfulness, because we cannot truly repent if our sin doesn't grieve us. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And the laughter that God brings is not only fuller than the world's laughter, but it isn't morbid and inappropriate either. Let's continue in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Philip Ryken said, the people who laugh loudest and longest will be the ones who suffered most for their faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. After the apostles were, were beaten, if we go to the book of Acts in chapter 5, the apostles are beaten and this is what happens. Acts 5.41 
Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name or the name of Jesus. Remember that Jesus had become poor, hungry, and sorrowful and rejected even though he is the richest, the fullest, the happiest, and in control of all. You want to hear the worst gospel presentation of all time? Anybody? You've heard it, I'm sure. You want to hear the worst one? You don't want to hear it? I'm going to say it anyway. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, it, it may be kind of true, but it's horribly misleading because God's wonderful plan is for his glory. And that might involve your suffering. God loves you, and he's called you to suffer for his name's sake. I heard a popular evangelical preacher say this. He said, following Jesus will make your life better, and will make you better at life. Tell that to Polycarp. <laughs> tell, tell that to Stephen. Tell that to all the apostles. Tell that to the countless martyrs throughout history that we honor and celebrate for their suffering. His soccer mom, God, may offer a safe, quiet, middle-class existence. My God bled and died in my place, and he bids me die to myself to take up my cross and to follow him into whatever suffering I might face and to do that with joy. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? Amen. Let's move to the opposing statements. The woes. Verse 24, again Luke 6, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. There are a couple of schools of thought when it comes to what Jesus meant when he says, woe to you. Woe is a warning. But is it speaking of direct judgment from God, or is it dealing with Jesus' sorrow over their living? R.C. Sprawl uh, talks about when Jesus says, woe to you. He says, it's the pronouncement of divine judgment and the curse of the Almighty God. But conversely, Philip Ryken says when Jesus speaks about woe, he was not warning people about judgment, but expressing his sense of sadness over the way they were living. Now, those are two very competent scholars. Which one of them's right? Here's the thing. I think both opinions can be true. I don't think we need to necessarily land on a position here. Because Christ is both just and gracious. We should fear him, right? But, but not wanting to disappoint him should be enough to guide our hearts into the right attitude. But that said, consider the audience. In verse 20, we're told that Jesus turned to his disciples and spoke. So it's his disciples. I, I might lean a little more towards Riken's position on that passage because Jesus is speaking of future blessings and curses. And we know that his disciples will not suffer eternal wrath. But since verse 26 mentions false prophets, it could also be warning about being a false convert. In the end, both opinions are biblical, so take your pick if you want. God is a consuming fire. His wrath is more terrifying than anything our finite minds can conceive of. 
too many pastors are out there filling their pews by avoiding topics such as sin, hell, and repentance. That's a compromise. It's the kind of compromise that false prophets make. And I'm tempted to apologize for making such a scathing indictment, but then I might be one too. We must never, we must never misrepresent God to earn the favor of people. Listen, the Bible offers some scary warnings to the rich, uh, but, but actually it, it never condemns being wealthy altogether. It's a heart issue, right? There, there are plenty of rich, godly people in the Bible. Abraham's one of them. No, he wasn't perfect. But he was God's chosen. Job, Joseph of Arimathea, who, uh, whose tomb Jesus' body was laid in. Solomon was very rich, offers plenty of warning about such wealth. Mark 10.25 says this, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, you can get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's possible. Just very difficult and time-consuming. He didn't say the animal had to stay alive. So, I, I, think, I think we find the clearest example of the dangers of wealth in the story of the rich young ruler. Listen to this. This is in Matthew 19. You can turn there. Matthew 19, verse 16. It's very compelling. Uh, and behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you should love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, I, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, tr uh, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So even there, he gives hope, right? But the rich young ruler, he'd probably seen his wealth as some sort of affirmation from God. And of course, he would have been wrong in that. And when Jesus challenged it, it shook him because he had turned his wealth into an idol and money had become his security and his comfort. You see, wealth in itself is not evil. Henry Ford grew his estate while creating wealth and security for countless Americans. We certainly couldn't believe the Marxist lie that the rich always get rich off the backs of the poor. Of course it happens, but it's not a universal role. Uh, Jesus wasn't a socialist, and that's not what this passage is teaching, as much as some would have you to believe that. Much of what is being said is that we need to be careful not to trust the provision in place of the provider. 
Let me repeat that. We need to be careful not to trust the provision and place of the provider. Is your, is your comfort in your 401k or in the cross? If you want to know, go give away your 401k. Okay, I'm not going to give financial advice here, but how, does the, how, does that, how did that thought make you feel in the moment? Like, how does the thought of giving away your retirement away feel to you? Woe to you, it says in verse 25, Luke 6, 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. One spring, a, a duck was flying north to enjoy the summer. At one point in his journey, he came along a farm where the domesticated ducks were munching on huge amounts of manufactured poultry food. He figured that he would drop in for an hour or so to take advantage of the free food. Well, it was pretty good food, and there was plenty of it, so he stayed longer. A week went by, and then a month. By the time he knew it, he had spent the whole summer at the farm, and lo and behold, fall comes around, and he spots a large flock of ducks flying south for the winter. Oh, excited, he began flapping his wings, but he, he, had, he had put on a little weight, and he couldn't make it above the barn. Still at the farm next spring, he heard another flock of ducks flying north. This time, he couldn't even make it off the ground. Eventually, he became so satisfied with farm life that he stopped noticing the wild ducks altogether. Philip Ryken shared that story, and he said this about it. The same thing can happen to anyone who starts gorging on what the world has to offer. You may fully intend to take off and fly again with the people of God, but you stay a little longer and taste the sweet corn of ungodliness. For a while, you're still willing to go to church and hear what God has to say, but eventually you decide it's hardly worth the effort. The irony is that People who feel they're full actually go hungry. People who do not have a craving for God do not feed on his word. Soon, they go starving for lack of fellowship with him. For the word hedonism, what hedonism does is it defines good in terms of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. If our appetite is for righteousness, we will not be satisfied until we are rid of sin. And we will not be rid of sin until we stand before Jesus. The pursuit of personal security can come at the expense of the pursuit of personal integrity. And that's a dangerous place to be. Jesus continues by warning those who laugh now. If you pursue happiness and pleasure over righteousness, you will mourn and weep later, he says. See, Jesus is pointing to a heart condition. Are we in pursuit of pleasure or holiness? They're, they may not be mutually exclusive, but if you have your priorities backward, you will have neither in the end. Let's close out our passage in verse 26. Luke 6, 26. Jesus continues to speak. He says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
there's an old saying, even a dead dog can swim, swim with the tide. You see, false prophets were people pleasers. Galatians 1.10, Paul says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Listen, can I be, can I be totally transparent with you? Sometimes that's dangerous. That's one of my most dangerous temptations. One of my most terrifying flaws as a pastor is my insecurity. And that's because with it comes the temptation to be a people pleaser. One of the most harmful and dangerous things a pastor can do is to tell people what they want to hear. And a lot of pastors do it. And they preach what's called the prosperity gospel. They tickle the ears of the hearers and lead them to pursuits of pleasure, wealth, and self-worth instead of humbly to the nail-scarred feet of Jesus. R.C. Sprawl said this. He said false prophets were the most popular men in Israel. Jeremiah came and said that the judgment of God was coming. The false prophets said, no, it isn't. Peace, peace. And there was no peace. Likewise, the church that proclaims God loves you unconditionally will be full. It's easy to live in a place where God does not require anything. No repentance, no faith. But that is not biblical. The truth is that he loves his people in the beloved. He loves his son unconditionally. But everyone else has to put their trust in the son to receive the ultimate blessing of God. How can we embody the heart of the blessed disciple? How do we address these things? Particularly if we happen to be rich full, joyful, and accepted. Another word for that might be American. I don't know. Most of us are not, most of us are not poor, hungry, or sad, right? Most of us are pretty well liked, and we have legal protections from discrimination against our deeply held religious convictions. But, but if you're suffering, know this, that you can identify with Christ in your suffering and that he has called you most blessed. But how can we identify in that way? Especially us who are so blessed right here and now. Let me give a few points. These are, these are difficult, really hard. If you're rich, give aid to the poor. If you have a full pantry, feed the hungry. you have joy, comfort those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. If you're accepted, defend the oppressed. See, this is how we identify with Jesus. This, these are ways we can be like Jesus because he is the heir of everything. And we get to be co-heirs with him. He is the supreme conqueror and we get to reign with him if we are his. Most importantly, however, I think the passage communicates to us that we need to understand our true poverty and that we are at odds with the corruption around us. 
We need to look at our priorities and our pursuits. We need to examine deeply our appetites. Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Let me close with Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God. But seek first above all things the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Oh, our holy God, we surrender to you all of our plans, dreams, and ambitions to love humbly for you. Lord, let us see our poverty that we might know your riches. For those of us who have much, oh Lord, let us see how little we have. For those of us who have little, let us trust our in our inheritance in Christ Jesus. For those of us who have received, who are rather, who are well received, let us understand the depth of Christ's forgiveness of sin and acceptance of the broken. And for those of us who are rejected, let us rejoice in that holy acceptance through faith. Lord, give us the strength to let go, to surrender to you and all that you have for us so that we might be truly blessed. Give us strength to endure with great joy the rejection and even the persecution of this world for your sake. God, we offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise. We, we enter this week in our mission field asking that you would give us your strength in giving the hope that we have been given. And we ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.